Well, this morning, uh, we're going to be uh, looking at Luke chapter 4, uh, verses 14 through 30. Luke chapter 4, uh, verses 14 through 30. Last week, we looked at uh, the temptation of Jesus uh, in the wilderness. And uh, this morning, we're going to look at uh, the very next event uh, in his ministry, uh, which is dislocated from historical sequence. Uh, So this event takes place later chronologically in his life. We find that from Mark and Matthew. Uh, But Luke puts it here. It provides sort of the theological framework and introduction to the ministry of Jesus in his life. So Luke chapter 4, verses 14 through 30. This is very important. Luke has put this here intentionally uh, so that uh, you will be uh, be able to understand who Jesus was, what he came to do, and how he was received. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. He went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, And on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. He began by saying to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Isn't this Joseph's son, they asked? Jesus said to them, Surely you will quote this proverb to me, Physician, heal yourself. And you will tell me, Do here in your hometown what we have heard that you did in Capernaum. Truly I tell you, he continued, No prophet is accepted in his hometown. I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the sky was shut for three and a half years and there was a severe famine throughout the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them, but to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha the prophet, yet not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. All the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They got up drove him out of the town and took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him off the cliff. But he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. This morning, uh, as Brian mentioned, in Sunday school we spent time uh, praying for the Durkies and for the situation in Burkina, some of the repercussions and consequences uh, there. And there's a reminder that there is a lot of suffering uh, in the world. I've also been reminded uh, the last few weeks here you know, that even in in our circles, uh, there have been just recently a, 
a number of reports of, of sickness. Uh, there have been a, a number just very recently uh, who have been called home uh, into the presence of the Lord. And there are some uh, who the expectation uh, is that soon and very soon uh, they're going to go and see the king. And so we need to just uh, remember uh, those who are sick, uh, those who um, are bereaved, and we need to recognize that uh, in the life that we all live here in this world, uh, whether we're young or old in this auditorium, uh, there is simply a finite span that is allotted to us all. And so we want to be mindful of that that we have one life to live, uh, it will come to an end, uh, but there is you know, grieving and, and sorrow and, and sickness and death as part of the world that we live in. So I just want to pray uh, for those you know, who are sick, for those you know, uh, families, uh, for those who have been bereaved, and also uh, in terms of absolute importance, it is so so necessary uh, that we understand uh, the truth. This is, this is a line that uh, I think about not infrequently, uh, from a hymn that I didn't know uh, we were going to sing uh, this morning, um, Man of Sorrows. And and one of the lines in that hymn that I, that I think about again and again and again and again is when it says, full atonement, can it be? Full atonement. In other words, is it really possible that there is an atonement which is enough to take away my sin. Like, can that really be the case? And and the author, as he reflects on this, says, yes, full atonement that Jesus has provided. Can it be? And it's a rhetorical question. Of course, the answer is yes. But it's an amazing thing you know, that there is full atonement for our sin. And, and when we realize that, that there is salvation in Christ, then whether it's in life or whether it's in death, whether it's in happiness or in sorrow, Jesus has taken care of our eternal destiny before God through his shed blood providing atonement for us. This is the most important thing in all of the world to know, uh, not just intellectually, but it's the most important thing in all of the world to, to know by experience, to be trusting in Jesus, to have you know, turned away from sin, and to be trusting in his full provision of atonement. So let's just take a moment uh, to pray. Father, the, the only reason that we can uh, be so bold as to address you, the transcendent and holy and infinite God, as our Father, is because we are united by faith with your Son, Jesus. And we are united with your Son, Jesus, because he has provided a full atonement for our sin. He has paid the penalty for our wrongdoing. He has given us eternal life by giving us his righteousness. And Father, this morning I pray that you will help us to understand in a new way the wonder of that, that we can be liberated from sin through your son, Jesus. Uh, that through what he has done for us, you know, there is salvation and liberation and sight and life. And Father, I pray that you will help us to never get to the point where we take that for granted. Help us never to reach a point where we uh, 
cease marveling at the full atonement provided for us in Jesus. Uh, Father, for those uh, who have recently been bereaved, Lord, for those who are sick, we just pray that your hand will be upon them. Lord, we would ask, yeah, we would be so bold as to ask that in that you would provide healing, uh, that you would restore health and strength. Uh, Lord, we would be so bold as to ask that for those uh, who have been bereaved, we pray that you will give them great consolation and comfort and encouragement and strength. Uh, Father, we would ask that every one of us will be ready in all the circumstances of life uh, to serve you, to honor you, to witness for you. And also, Lord, ultimately, I pray that for every one of us, by your spirit, we will be ready for that inevitable time when we stand before you. And I pray that you will order all of our life, all of our priorities, all that we are and do uh, on around that central fact of our future. That we will stand before the living God. And Father, help us to know that on that day we can stand before you with nothing to fear, uh, with no worry of condemnation, because of the full atonement provided by Jesus Christ. Father, we pray that this message will be seen and heard uh, in all the nations of the world. We think in a special way of the Durkies and uh, in Burkina. And Father, we just ask that uh, the light and power and love and compassion and forgiveness of the gospel of Jesus will stand in such stark contrast to the darkness of hatred and violence, uh, that many will come to see their need of the Son of God. Be with us, we pray. Give us alert minds to your truth. Give us open hearts to receive it. And Father, may everything that is said and may everything that we think and feel be pleasing and honoring to you and accurate to your word. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So in, as I mentioned, in Luke, this event, this sort of sermon, marks the, the beginning of the ministry of Jesus Christ. It, it's absolutely foundational. So Luke places this event here for theological reasons. That is, he wants you to understand Jesus' ministry through this lens. And the lens, in terms of its introduction, is, is fairly clear. Jesus has just been baptized. The Spirit has descended upon him. The voice from heaven has come. This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Jesus is led by the Spirit out into the wilderness, where in the power of the Holy Spirit, he redoes the history of Israel. Where Israel and Adam failed, Jesus, as the Son of God, succeeds. Then we notice that after his temptation by Satan in the wilderness... Verse 13, the devil finished all this tempting. He left him until an opportune time. And the very next thing we're told about Jesus is that Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. So Luke is making sure that you understand that the, the baptism and the temptation in the wilderness did not deplete Jesus' spiritual resources. It wasn't that the Holy Spirit was just upon him for that little time, but rather Jesus is, from the moment of his baptism, moving forward in everything that he does in his ministry, he does so by the power of the Spirit. And he doesn't even sort of come out of the wilderness bloodied and beaten up. He comes out of the wilderness having triumphed over Satan with power. 
because he comes forward in the presence of the Holy Spirit. And what he does in the power of the Spirit is the same thing that the disciples do in the book of Acts when they are filled by the Spirit. They teach and preach the Word of God. So we're told that Jesus, in the power of the Spirit, goes out in verse 15, he was teaching. This is what Jesus does. In fact, in the first two chapters in Mark's Gospel, we find that Jesus is doing miracles and driving out demons, and huge crowds are gathering around. And the disciples say to Jesus, this is great, look at all the crowds. And Jesus says, you know what, we need we need to get away from the crowds. If I spend all of my time healing people and driving out demons, I'll never be able to accomplish the purpose for which the Father has sent me, which is, I must go to other towns to teach and preach there also. In other words, the ministry of Jesus, although there are signs and wonders and miracles and all of the rest, not to be diminished, the ministry of Jesus is a ministry of proclamation and teaching the word of God and delivering the message of the kingdom. It is word-based. And so this is one of the reasons that we are sort of uh, unashamedly you know, word-based in terms of our ministries here at the church. This is what Jesus does. Jesus comes and teaches people about who he is. He preaches, he teaches, and it's centered on the unfolding revelation of God in terms of bringing God's purposes and plan to fulfillment. Uh, we, in case you've ever wondered, maybe you've never analyzed this. I don't, I don't want to put any doubts in your mind now. You know, if you haven't, you ever, ever wonder really why? Whoever invented the sermon, you know, you've had enough of them inflicted on you over your life, right? I mean, did you ever stop and wonder why? You know, why do we bother showing up? Why do we sit there? Why? Whose idea was this? You know. Well, that's what Jesus did. Jesus gathered with people. He taught. He preached the word of God. That's what the apostles did. That has always been the foundation of genuine Christian ministry. And where you have a word-based ministry, you will have outreach. Because you can't be faithful to the word of God without reaching out to the lost. And where you have the word of God, you will have you know, a desire to meet sort of humanitarian needs. Like drilling wells for water, clothing the naked, feeding the poor. I mean, because you can't be faithful to the word if you're neglecting those sorts of things. Uh, But even what we do in terms of practical service for other people must emerge from being organically rooted in the word of God. It always comes back to this. This is our authority. This is our foundation. This is what everything we do needs to be based upon. Even Jesus himself comes to preach and teach the word of God. And the message of the kingdom. So he goes into Nazareth. He goes to the synagogue. And he's given a scroll of the prophet Isaiah. And he finds the section that he wants to read. And he reads this. From Isaiah 61. The spirit of the Lord is on me. Because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. The Spirit of the Lord is on me. 
we won't say that Luke has belabored that point in his gospel, but Luke has mentioned it so many times that when you read this very first opening line, the Spirit of the Lord is on me, is your immediate thought is supposed to be, well, this can only be speaking about Jesus. I mean, who else does the Spirit of the Lord rest upon that way? Look at multiple times that in the baptism, the Spirit of the Lord comes down upon him, conceived by the power of the Spirit, filled with the Spirit. Even John the Baptist, the forerunner of Jesus, is filled with the Spirit from the womb, who testifies prophetically about who Jesus is from the womb. Luke is bathing his gospel in the atmosphere and environment of the Holy Spirit. And so Isaiah, looking forward to a servant of the Lord who will appear, who is primarily, or sort of, the the first thing that you want to say about him is that the Spirit of the Lord is upon him, it just should be obvious that this is referring to Jesus. He is the one upon whom the Spirit rests and dwells and fills and leads and empowers. The Spirit of the Lord is on me. To do what? The Spirit of the Lord is on me, Jesus says, reading from Isaiah, because he has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. And we know uh, that good news is the gospel. And so here Jesus is saying, the Spirit of the Lord has filled me so that I can go out and proclaim gospel, good news to the poor. That's what we see Jesus doing uh, in his ministry. And the poor here are not merely those who are not economically well off. And there are in t- there are sort of undercurrents of that, but the poor are sort of all of those in society who are disadvantaged and downtrodden and marginalized. So it's not just economics; it might also be you know, status and reputation. In the Old Testament, we'll look at this actually a little bit more uh, in a few chapters in Luke. In the Old Testament, the poor were often identified as the righteous in the prophetic literature because the rich were growing rich in certain history, in certain eras in Israel's history by exploiting the poor. And so the poor were sort of equated with the righteous while the rich were equated with the wicked. Again, this is nothing to do with how much money you have. It had everything to do with how you got that money. And so when the rich were abusing the courts, bribing judges, taking poor people to law, paying off the judge, and then confiscating what little the poor had, or when the rich were simply not paying the poor the wages they had promised them, the rich were getting richer because of their wickedness, the poor were getting poorer, and so in the prophetic literature, often the prophets come to Israel at different times in Israel's history, and, and they, they just ream out those who are rich because of their injustice. It's not because they have money, it's because of how they got it. Okay, and so today, I was going to bring something in, I'm not going to bring it in, uh, except now I have to, you'd be wondering what I was going to say. Very quickly, today, you know, in, in some circles, uh, there's a teaching that basically says God has this uh, preferential option for the poor. So it, what we need to do is sort of have this sort of Christian socialism where we take money from the rich people and then distribute it to, to the poor. Well, you can work through some of those things sort of on your own, but one of the the failings in it theologically is it fails to understand the prophetic context in which the prophets are criticizing the rich and the poor. In other words, there seems to sort of miss 
that the real issue isn't sort of exactly how much money you have. It's the heart behind it and the method used to acquire it. That's that's the issue. And that just seems to be completely missed uh, in some of these circles. Although, um, if you have lots of money and, and you want to redistribute it to me, that's fine. Okay. Uh, the Spirit of the Lord is on me. He's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. This is all good news. And what we find in the gospel is that it runs on two levels. There is a literal physical fulfillment of this. Jesus will literally give sight to the blind. He will literally heal people. But the the physical is designed to illustrate what's more important, which is the spiritual and the eternal. So that even for us, a lot of our a lot of the language in hymns that resonates most with us is this sort of metaphorical language. I once was blind, but now I see. I once was lost, but now am found. My chains fell off, my heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed. The, all, all of these sorts of images, they're, they're, they're right here in this one section in Isaiah. But when, when we sing, then we recognize that although they were true literally and physically for some, there is a spiritual analog, which if we are saved is true for all of us. That is, we are all born blind in sin. We are all born trodden down and oppressed because of the curse in our human nature. Uh, we are all born in slavery to sin. And then we, we go on uh, not to loosen our chains, but we go on to strengthen them. We go on to make them tighter and heavier. You know, we go on to, to increase the grip of sin and Satan and darkness in our hearts and in our lives. And it's only in the power of the gospel where you have someone powerful enough to come to us to liberate us and rescue us and to break our chains. That's what we need. And none of us are able to set ourselves free. We can't. And you would think, looking around at our world, that that would not be a controversial statement. We can't do it on our own. We can't stop acting as if we are the center of the universe. We can't get outside of ourselves to even assess ourselves properly. Part of our blindness is completely bound up with the fact that we actually think we see. That's our problem. In fact, not only are we blind, as Jesus says, you know, there are none so blind as those who will not see. <laughs> and that's our, that's our, that's our problem. But here's some good news from the one who is anointed by the Spirit. There, there is no chain that he cannot break. There, there is no bondage that he cannot bring liberation to. There is no one who is so far sort of screwed down under someone's thumb that the spirit-filled servant of the Lord cannot liberate them and give them new life. In other words, what Jesus does by the power of the spirit is Jesus comes and he proclaims a message that says this. Listen, there is nothing, nothing external or internal that can keep you in bondage when the sun sets you free. 
There is no set of circumstances. There are no people in your life. There is nothing in the world outside of yourself that can force you into slavery in the sight of God. And there's nothing even in your own heart and soul that is beyond the power of Jesus Christ to conquer. And, and that's our only hope. Right? I mean, like, like the only hope, honestly, that any of us have, and, and I feel this keenly for myself, the only hope that I have is that Jesus Christ is a Savior who is greater than my own heart. Because if he's not, then there is no liberation for me. There is no hope for me. There is no salvation for me. My only hope is in Jesus' grace being greater than all of my sin. And it is. And that's why it's good news. It's not an equal contest. I don't bring equal power to the struggle with Jesus. It's not like Jacob wrestling with God. There is no contest. There is no contest. Jesus has the power to save us, to save any of us, no matter our circumstances, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. That is jubilee imagery. It's a jubilee motif. In the Old Testament law, every 50 years, uh, those who were in debt were supposed to have their debts erased. Those who had had to mortgage their properties were supposed to get their properties back. Those who were slaves were supposed to be released. And even though, actually, we see no evidence that the year of Jubilee was ever practiced in Israel in contravention to the law of God, the idea, especially in Isaiah, that a year of Jubilee was actually going to take place drove future hope and prophetic vision. And so this imagery here is that finally, when the Messiah shows up, when the servant of the Lord shows up, the one who was anointed by the Spirit to do all of these things, then... Then there will actually be a year of jubilee. Then all the debts are erased and all the slaves go free and all the properties return. Then everything is set back to right to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And Jesus says, that day is now. I have come to set you free. So when he sits down, he says, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. The year of the Lord's favor has come because the servant who's anointed by the Spirit has come. The year of Jubilee has come because I have come. In other words, release and Jubilee and freedom, it's entirely bound up with Jesus Christ. You only have that when you have him. Everyone likes this message. And they say, this is great. Everyone spoke well of him. In Mark's gospel, though, we find out that, but they also took offense to him, Mark tells us about this episode. In other words, at first it sounds great. Yeah, this is great. But as people started thinking, well, man, the, the year of Jubilee is wonderful. But wait a minute, that's, that's Joseph's son. We, we know that guy. Who, who, who does he think he is? Year of Jubilee is bound up with him? That guy? The carpenter's son? You know, the, the guy from Rockwood? You know, like, like, this isn't important. This isn't silly. Like, you gotta be kidding me. We know that guy. 
Jesus says, surely you will quote this proverb to me, physician, heal yourself. And you will tell me, do here in your hometown what we have heard you did. Interesting grammar here. Not do here what you did, but do here what we heard you did. Lack of faith. Truly, I tell you, that no prophet is accepted in his hometown. I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the sky was shut for three and a half years and there was a severe famine throughout the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them, but to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha the prophet, yet not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. Now, this is very interesting. Because it seems to me, and I'm, I'm a gentle soul, you know, so maybe this is why. Um, and maybe just because I'm Canadian at this time in history when Canadians can't take a stand for anything. Uh, you know, Jesus uh, says this, and the people want to kill him. That, to my Canadian respectable sensibility, seems a slight overreaction, you know? Like, they don't just say, well, we disagree. They don't just say, well, here's the door. They say, let's throw him off a cliff. Now, I, that doesn't resonate with me. You know, I, I, I don't know why you would, why you would do that, right? So the question is, well, why did they do that? Why that reaction? Jesus, I want to be careful here because we're not told why. So I recognize that this is speculative and we need to be, we always need to differentiate our speculation from what the text says. Jesus breaks off his reading of Isaiah in mid-sentence. So that in Isaiah 61 you read, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, and the day of vengeance of our God. But Jesus doesn't read that part. And the day of vengeance of our God. The question is why? Why doesn't Jesus finish the sentence? Well, if you read Isaiah carefully, and if you understand how Isaiah was interpreted, the year of the Lord's favor was interpreted as being for who? Israel. The day of vengeance of our God. Guess who that was for? Not Israel. That, That was for everyone else. That was for the Gentiles. That was for the enemies of Israel. Because the enemies of Israel were naturally equated with the enemies of God. In a natural framework which has persisted in every war that's ever been fought in nations affected by the Judeo-Christian worldview. It's always God is on our side. Right? God is against them because he's for us. And what's one of the fascinating things is in the American Civil War is you find out that uh, the people in the North were convinced God was on their side, the people in the South were convinced God was on their side. Everyone's always convinced God's on their side. Right? Uh, because obviously I'm on God's side or he's on my side or whatever it happens to be, so my enemies are God's enemies. It's just a natural equation. So Israel is expecting a day of jubilee for them, which will coincide with a day of vengeance and judgment and destruction for the Gentiles. 
But Jesus, although he is the Messiah for Israel, is the Messiah who in a previous section in Isaiah was told that it is too small a thing for him just to be the savior of the Jews. That the sovereign Lord looks at him and says, it is too small a thing for you just to save the tribes of Jacob. I will make you a light to the Gentiles. And so Jesus is here for the whole world. And so the day of Jubilee is not just for Israel, although it is for Israel too. It's more expansive than that. This is one of the things that Luke's gospel is known for. Luke's gospel is known for its universalism. Not meaning that every single person will be saved, but that Jesus' ministry and message is universal or global in scope. It is for everyone. The poor, the rich, you know, men, women, boys, girls, free, slave, Jew, Gentile, whatever sorts of, you know, binary social demographics, you know, charts you want to use. He's for them all. And Jesus, to help them understand that, doesn't read in a day of vengeance for our God because they'll misunderstand what he's saying. He says, I've come to proclaim a year of Jubilee. And it's for everyone. And it's with Old Testament precedent. Because remember, Elijah, in that, that terrible famine because of the wickedness of the land. And God sent Elijah right out of Israel right into the heart at that time of right right to the center and heart of Baal worship. And God said, I'm going to send you, Elijah, as my prophet, to the center of the pagan world in terms of the worship of Baal. And I'm going to display my power there and take care of a widow. Someone who was nothing in the eyes of society. Poor, a widow, no value to anyone. But it is there that the Lord provides a miraculous you know, provision of food. It is there that her son is raised to life after he dies. And it is there that this pagan widow in the heart of Baalism confesses at the end, the Lord is God. You are a prophet of God. The word out of your mouth is true because you are the Lord's prophet. And Jesus says he could have gone, there are a lot of widows in Israel. But even then, God was showing, I am the God who saves the lost, even beyond the borders of Israel. You see the same same thing with Elisha. Elisha, with Naaman, the general of the Syrian army, and Syria was, and and, and Israel were, were constant enemies. And Naaman, this general, has leprosy. And Naaman goes to Israel to meet the prophet of God. And do you know why? Why would this, this very important Syrian general go to Israel? Does anyone, anyone remember? Like how, would, how would he know? How, how did he know to go talk to the prophet in Israel? Anyone, anyone remember? Yeah, the, this servant girl. This Israelite girl who was kidnapped uh, in a raid of the Syrian army, who's who's captured and, and ripped away from her home, and ends up in Naaman's house as the servant to Naaman's wife. This little Israelite servant girl, kidnapped, uprooted, with all of the. And we read the Bible. We go, oh, yeah, okay, so she was taken, and, and but stop and think about that. You know, and. and and, and you pray, there's some things that, that, you know, in some ways even guides your prayers for the Elliots, that, that, 
couple that were kidnapped in Burkina. Even, Lord, even even if they are pressed into the service of Al-Qaeda in that home, give them an opportunity to witness for you. That's what this little girl does. She says, well, you, you know, your master has leprosy. There's a prophet in Israel. What an amazing thing. A little girl, kidnapped, enslaved. There's a prophet in Israel. Well, you only believe there's a prophet in Israel if you believe that there's a God in Israel. Naaman comes and you know, the story ends up originally upset because he's not asked to do something great. And he dips himself in the Jordan River seven times and the leprosy goes away. And he comes up and he says, now I know there is no God in the world except in Israel. And Jesus says, Elijah, Elisha, this widow, this general, it's a year of the Lord's favor for everyone in Israel and beyond. What the people hate, though, like Jonah. The point of Jonah is is not the fish. I'm not, not sure. If, not sure if you actually know. There's more to Jonah than the story of the fish. It's not the fish. The point of Jonah is the universal love and forgiving mercy of God, and the fact that the Israelite prophet hates it. Make no mistake, that's the point of Jonah. Read the book. God, I did not want to come here because I know you are a merciful and a compassionate God. And I wish I was dead. That's what he says. That's what he says. And this is post fish delivery. You know, like, like, like this is after he's been saved. I mean, like, like this is not early on. You know, oh my goodness. What, what does that say about the human heart? I, but in some ways, if I'm honest, that, that also runs a little close to my heart too. It does. I want Revival to come to our city. I really do. I, I want to see the church strengthened. I want the church to grow. I want to see sinners awaken. I want to see a movement of the Spirit of God in this city. And I do not want to see it take place through Calvary Baptist. Do you? Do you? Do you? Do, do I want to see God working through other churches? Or do I want to see God working contingent on it being through me and through us? Because if that's, if that's what I want, then what does that say about my heart? It says that I, I don't care, frankly, I don't care a bit about the kingdom. I care about my kingdom. I don't care a bit about the lost. I, I care about the numbers here or whatever. 
Do, do we really, truly, truly want to see Jesus get a hold of this world? Or, or is it all contingent on us being part of it? So, so yes, let's have a year of Jubilee, but as long as it's here. Jesus, we want you to be anointed by the Spirit, but, but don't talk to us about the Gentiles. There's vengeance for them. There's Jubilee for us. Don't you forget it. That's the message we want. Well, may God help us if, if that really is, if there are even undercurrents of that. May God help us. And here the people say, you know what? If you want to have mercy on the Gentiles, then we, not only do we not want you, we want you to be dead. And they take him. Someone who has just proclaimed jubilee and release and freedom for everyone. They say, if that's the kind of Messiah you are, we'd rather not have a Messiah at all. And in the end, they will put him on a cross. And they bring him right up to the edge of the cliff where the city is built. And we're not told how or why, but Jesus simply walks through their midst. And to me, this is is one of those just delicious moments in Scripture. Because this is the fulfillment of Psalm 91. When Satan had just said to Jesus in the wilderness, go up on the high place, throw yourself down. God will protect you, right? And Jesus said, yes, he will. But not if I put him to the test. I'll just walk by faith. God will take care of me. And here Jesus is brought to the point of a cliff to be thrown down. And God protects him. In other words, Psalm 91 was always true. If you lived in the shadow of the Most High and trusted in the Lord, the Lord, Jesus knows God will take care of him. And here you see Satan trying to destroy Jesus by misquoting that text. And here's that text that Jesus, that Satan asked Jesus to test is fulfilled. Right at the point of his death, God delivers him from the crowd. Psalm 91. That's a great thing. You know, this section then shows us so much about Jesus, about what he came to do, what he came to teach, how God's sovereign plan was going to be unfolded, how there was a year of jubilee for the world. But it also has a very, 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 very strong accent on this. Do not reject him. Do not reject him. The synagogue had that scripture fulfilled in their hearing. They were right there seeing the one who was the fulfillment of Psalm 60, or, or Isaiah 61. And they drove him out. Do not harden your heart against the Lord's anointed. Receive him. Turn to him. Ask him to give you forgiveness and release. Ask him to work in your heart to give you this life. Ask him to show you, you know, to help you see properly who he is and who you are and what you need. And I would, in some ways, plead with you today, this, this very morning, you know, don't, don't go home without knowing Jesus. Don't go home without being secure in his love and freedom and sight. Don't go home having kept Jesus away you know, from your heart and from your life. The gospel will give us a million reasons as, as it unfolds as to why we should cherish and treasure Jesus and cling to him, hold him close. 
Luke wants you to know right from the very beginning. You either receive the message or you drive the messenger away. But it is only in Jesus that there is life and freedom for us all. I'm going to pray. And then our musicians are going to come and lead us in our closing song. Our Father, we would ask that you would help us uh, to have clear eyes, spiritually speaking, to see your Son. We thank you for the historical reality that he was anointed by your Spirit, that he has come and he has, he has conquered, he has done all of these things. And Father, I pray now that your Spirit will be at work in all of our minds and hearts to accept who Jesus is. Not the Jesus we want him to be, but to align ourselves with who he actually is. May he be our cornerstone that we are shaped around rather than trying to create him into our own image. Lord God, help us to worship and love your son who is infinitely worthy of praise. And Father, if there are any hearts here this morning where there still is a rejection of Jesus or even a coldness to Jesus, We pray that your spirit will bring life and light and fire. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.